welcome to the fourth episode of Season 9 of Delving Into Dance. This episode is with the recently announced Australia Council Award winner for dance, Vicky Van Hoot. Vicky is a First Nations artist with a multi-dimensional and diverse dance practice. I interviewed Vicky in the lead-up to Yurimboy Festival taking place in Melbourne, where her work, Pretty Serious, Talk Talk, will be performed. I started by asking what drew her to dance after first being drawn to theatre. This is the story. I got chucked out of school when I was in year 11. I think year 11 the first time around because I went back to school, but I got chucked out because I'd fed... We we decided on a year 11 camp to take a lot of sinus tablets. I don't know. And we fed all the sinus tablets to our friends and three of us got chucked out. Or we all got given different ultimatums. A friend of mine was told to repeat. I was told to go away and seriously think about my future and maybe apply to come back to school the next year. And another friend was told that she, on no uncertain terms, should could she come back? And when I would, and I'd always, I think I, I was planning to audition for NIDA when I'd finished high school, but I'd had three, you know, I'd had three monologues ready, so I auditioned for NIDA. But the, and in the meantime, I made the second round, but of course they turned, they moved me on. I think I was 16, and then a friend of mine, uh, she was living, She, the one that was told never to come back, she had moved to a place called the Gunnery in Woolloomooloo. It's a squat, and so it's a, it was an old naval gunnery just around near, um, well, it's in Woolloomooloo, and so it's right near the boy, just down from the boy Charlton, and I think Russell Crowe has a, I don't know, had a man, you know, had a seaside apartment on one you know just across the way and i uh, there was a there was a friend who was living in the squat and his name was greg etok and his sister is a filmmaker kathy etok and he'd said why do you nida why do you want to go to nida why don't you go to nasda i was like what the hell is nasda and he explained that it was an aboriginal and torres strait islander dance school where you know i could learn about my people and Funnily enough, I got an application form, and my mum had uh, my mum had gotten an application form, and I'd filled it out. But I said I wasn't too interested in doing the Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander dance. This may be the classical and the, the contemporary. What was I thinking? But then years later, it kind of became my raison d'etre. I don't know why I thought it was. I don't know why I didn't want to do it. I don't because I thought. So here's a thing: a young person, you know, I thought, oh, it's not legitimate dance or something. But it became, you know, it quickly became the other way around that I found I had a simpatico and a really, I've, because when you're, you know, when you're doing that, mainly the Aboriginal dance for me, when you're doing the Aboriginal dance or the Aboriginal dances that I had been exposed to, predominantly Yungle dances from Northeast Arnhem Land, what you're doing is you really are acting. You're, you're not, you're not, um, you know, you're not, there's no fourth wall. You really are embodying this thing. So you might be a dog, you might be the you might be the mouth of a crane searching for fish. And I remember years later, a, a woman called Kathy Marika had said to me, "Oh my God, you're going to go hungry." And I said, "Why is that?" And she goes, "Well, you've put no yams in your basket." You know, like they're really they pay attention, and it, it was, you know, there is a you jump your you have so much conviction. There's, you go to a different place, and so I think. You know, probably, you know, because I'd had years of drama training when I was young and then, you know, so it was a segue. It really felt like it felt seamless because there is a sense of 
there is a sense of real theatrics in uh, Abri the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander dance that's not necess that's considered maybe a little bit passe or a little bit, you know, gauche or something, you know, in terms of contemporary dance. And so I'm all about being accessible because it really is a community thing as well because you see babies and really old people dancing as well. So it's not this thing that's exclusive. It's a thing that's very inclusive in the community. Yeah. So. And then you went to New York and went to the Graham School, which would be very different again. Uh, yes, because I had a teacher, his name was Paul Saliba, and I had a, when I was at night, I'm an all or nothing kind of person, and I had 100% attendance at NASA, so they used to give me little prizes, you know, for turning up all the time. And then, you know, I used to always, so I had a, I had a tight regime. At one stage, I used to get up, I used to get up at 5.30, I'd swim from 6 to 7 or 6 to 10 to 7, then I'd go and do yoga from, uh, it's hilarious, I'd do yoga in glee from 7 till 8, 8.30. Then I'd go to Naysda from 9 till 5 and then Paul Saliba would drive me in his car and I'd do his night class at Sydney Dance from, you know, 6.30 till 8 or something. So I had this, you know, it was a... And so he had kind of taken me under his wing because, you know, and I used to hang out with him at lunchtime. Oh, my God, what a nerd. But anyway, so he wrote away years ago... Uh, there's a singer, Casey Donovan. Her dad, Merv, was a he. He had a, an administrative role at NASA, and he said, "Look, we're going to try and get you an ATSIC grant." So that's when ATSIC was around. He said, "What would you like to do?" And so you know, uh, Paul Celebre had always been saying, "Oh yeah, one day you'll go to Martha Graham," because in my lunch break he would show me videos of Martha Graham doing lamentation. So I ended up. Um, so what happened was is that Merv wrote a grant, uh, Paul Saliba wrote an application form, I got accepted into the Graham School and I got money. So I, that's, it was kind of like a fairy tale, you know what I mean? And But when I got there, it was very, you know, it's, it's very old school. I don't know what it's like now, but it was very old school. So it was in the 90s, showing the age, well, my age is on the face, but it, it was in the 90s and nobody wore ballet shoes, but they wore ballet shoes in the in the corridors. Nobody wore track pants because I was just saying to somebody else, you know, I couldn't go to Graham today because I love my track pants and I wouldn't be seen dead in a pair of tights. But I used to wear, used to wear, I used to wear a unitard. And one time I, but when I first got there, I was wearing track pants and somebody said to me, it was actually Carol Freed, who was the, the then director of the school, uh, of the company, not the school. And she was taking class and she came up to me and she said, what have you got on under those pants of yours? And I said, um, underpants and she said well if you turn up tomorrow in those pants you will be dancing in those underpants and so from then on I always made sure that I had a pair of, like I had skin tight clothing on and you weren't allowed get this they encourage you to wear light colors so predominantly gray and beige so that you could see the muscles activated but no you could see a lot more than that you could see every sin known to man like any kind of dimples or anything, you could see it all. It was very unforgiving. And the training also, you know, when any of the teachers walked into the room, we automatically, you know, stepped to the left and sat down. Like there was a particular way of sitting down. There was a particular way, you know, there was a particular way that 
Graham dancers held themselves and that we, you know, we were known as uptown dancers because none of us went downtown to the meat district. So that was, you know, circa Cunningham or anything. No, we were uptown dancers, uptight more like, but no, it was, it was lovely. And I, you know, and I, I sample a little bit of this in Talk Talk because it's kind of, it was ingrained in my body. Again, when I was at uh, Graham, I took things to the next level and I used to do four classes a day, which was ridiculous. And, and then I was living on 120th between 5th and Lennox and I used to walk 60 blocks through the So I used to walk to, uh, what was it, 110th. Then I used to walk through the park to Graham. Then I'd walk back home at lunchtime. Then I'd catch a bus back for the night class and then I'd catch a bus, bus back home at night. So I'd, I'd walk to and from and then catch a bu bus to and from every day. It was ridiculous, but I loved it, you know, and also I, but I quickly found my people because when I was living in the gunnery, I, there, it was, there were 34 squatters and they were predominantly punks. So when I went to New York, I was, I, I was living at first uh, with with uh, a friend, a friend of a friend. I'd been shown, but I had to move out, so I moved to 72nd between Third and Lex in a women's residence. It was a Catholic women's residence, but that got that came. I know where your gentleman callers must wait downstairs, and uh, and then I um, I did, I couldn't stay there, so I moved to 63rd and First. And Graham Graham was across the road. Martha Graham, the school was across the road. But I shared, um, I, I shared a studio with a woman called Jeannie Filippini, who was a go-go dancer come fire baton twirler. And so what would happen was is that she'd go go-go dancing at night and I'd go out during the day. So we, But we shared a studio. So I slept on the floor near the heating duct and she had a big double bed, but all my clothes were packed underneath her bed. And I lived there for about three years and she got me a job at a place called Manic Panic. So Manic Panic is a hair dye place where, and what they said were, and their motto is live fast and dye your hair, but they are punks who were the first backup singers for Blondie. And then they were also in a band of their own called the Sick Fucks. And so I used to go and watch them play. So I kind of located my community when I was there. And when I, when I came back, for a little while, I was kind of like, oh, I was with Bangara when I came back from New York and I was kind of floating a bit. But, yeah, I was kind of floating a bit because I didn't know where I fit in. And then I think it was Julianne Long and Martin Delamo, one of them had approached me to do, uh, I think it was a, it wasn't called Day for Night. It was one of their programs, one of their evening, mixed evening programs to do a different kind of welcome to country because I'd been known for doing this dance in thongs, a welcome dance in thongs. But, again, I think performance space was like just it was... So I went from the gunnery to Tish and Snooky. So Manic Panic is also a hair dye place. I think I said that. It's a hair dye place. And they have, like, franchises all over the world. Um, and then I came back here and then I was working with, you know, and kind of picked up with performance space. So it felt like a very seamless kind of trajectory in a funny, circuitous way. It was, yeah. So what was the move into choreography? Uh, the move into choreography is because I've got a very odd, I think I've got a very odd body. And when I tell people that I'm a dancer, the first thing they say is, really, you're a dancer? 
and then I always feel like I have to do some obligatory high kick. Like I've always got to kind of, kind of do the split, find a way. I've got to find a way to either do the splits or kick my legs high for somebody to go, oh, yes, yeah, she is a dancer or bend over. You know, you've got to do some kind of ridiculous stretch. And then they go, yes, she is a dancer of calibre. You know, because if you're not on your toes, you're not, you know, you're not anything. So, yes. Yes. Did I ask so the question? Yeah, so what yeah. was the move into choreography? Well, the move into choreography is because, well, I was with Bangara, but I don't think, I think Stephen and I both, although Stephen gave me a nudge, Stephen Page gave me a nudge, which is probably a good thing because I came back into the country also because uh, Catherine Dunn had left Bangara and so Stephen Page had sent, had sent me a text to come, to come and join the cast of Bangara. But I really, I found out that I'm not one, I'm not very good with choral kind of choreographies. <laughs> I'm not really good in a group situation unless maybe I'm leading that group. And so I, I spent a lot of time when I was with, when I was in Bangara, I spent quite a bit of time with Marilyn Miller. Oh, and then like, even before that, oh, I'm so sorry, before that, when I was in New York, when I was at Graham, they make you, as part of their overseas program, they make you do like their, you know, their choreography classes. So it starts off with, you know, I think it's, they don't, they don't do improvisation. But there's like, you have to do theme and variations, theme and variations. Then you have to do a Bartok piece. Then you have to do something else. So there's three different levels of what you, you know, what they required you to do in their, you know, in their creative dance, in their choreography classes. And I remember once there was an older lady, Pearl Lang, she'd seen something that I'd done and she goes, come here to me, what's your name? And I said, Vicky. And she goes, where are you from, dearie? And I said, Australia. She goes, yes, I really like that. And then she said, I think I want you to do this in the, you know, in the school program. So there was an evening program, you know, people were invited to choreograph. Like students at Graham were invited to choreograph. And listen, when I was at NASDA, I think, they just pushed me through the choreography because all I did was sit under a table in the corner and cry. But when I came back, but, you know, she saw something in me and then from then on I got it into my head that I really wanted to choreograph. And then I came back. When I came back, I just thought to myself, oh, you know, maybe I don't fit somewhere else, so I'll just make my own thing. I'll do my own thing. And what was really lovely, when I left Bangara, Marilyn Miller had uh she, she's a fellow dancer who was with bangara but she left later on because she broke a foot but she uh she started um she started a group called fresh dancers and it was to cater to the corporate market but she'd held a lot of preliminary meetings with aboriginal and torres strait islander um independent dancers just looking for ways to stay like to keep training and to also find avenues of work. And, you know, I jumped on that like white on rice and I started teaching the classes for her on the weekend. And then she she would ask me to choreograph for that group as well. And so I would choreograph really short format pieces. And then, you know, I don't know what it was. There was a fella called Jason Pitt and he had made a work. I forget what the work was. I, I can't cite it, but it was... A, he had made a work that had made a really big impact on a lot of people in Sydney. And he and he was watching one of the rehearsals and he came up to me and he said, oh, I assume somebody else was um, 
was choreographing and I just noticed that you were doing all the choreography and then Marilyn had said that she was moving to I'm sorry it's long-winded Marilyn said that she was moving to Cairns and so, which you know North Queensland and so she and so then I felt like rattleless so all of a sudden I, you know I was doing all of these choreographies for her and then there was no avenue because nobody was finding the work and I couldn't find the work because I was making the material and then Jason Pitt had said to me, so he's a fellow from Weeper, he had said to me, well, what are you going to do, sis? Are you going to be a choreographer? Are you going to, like, just put in a grant. And so he, like, so I got it into my head. Oh, my God, I'm going to make it work. And so I remember also I had a back injury and I had my ex go into the building one day, and so he's an Englishman, and he just went into NASDA and he said, I need an office. And I, you know, and I said to him, oh, my God, it takes a lot of audacity to be an Englishman going into an Aboriginal institution and going, where's my office? You know, and so they put him up in a lot, like they put him up in, I think it was, it was a tiny little back, back room and he, and he was typing out. So I wrote my grant longhand and he was typing it out. And then he went to Jason because Jason was in there. So he was in at NASDA and he was, uh, so that's the Aboriginal Islander Dance Theatre. And he had, so years later I went back and I was teaching there, but not while I was sick. And he said to Jason, Vicky's got all of these short form videos and I need, I can't edit. Can you put them together? So Jason did put them together for me. It was really nice. I mean, we'd had a lot of friction after that. Oh, God, it's like a two, it's like a 2 a.m. confessional. Like, <laughs> had a lot of, like Jason and I, we were contemporaries. He was younger. He's younger than me, but he had a lot of chutzpah. You know, he went out and he he was like, no, man, I'm going to make my own work. I'm not going to wait for somebody to employ me. I'm going to make my own work. And so, I, you know, and he helped me along the way, you know. He, yeah, and he kind of, even though he was younger, he was really inspiring that way. He was an inspiration. So both Marilyn and Marilyn Miller and Jason Pitt were inspirations for different, you know, for different reasons. But I think he went. He was very inspired by Lloyd Newsom of Deviate, and so what he had done, and he'd heard that Lloyd was doing psychology or something, so he quit dance and went to university and got a degree in psychology, and so now he's a psychologist, or he's a. I think he's doing maybe dark collecting data, or he's doing something in the field of psychology at any rate, which is hilarious. Probably making a lot more money than anyone out there dancing. Yes, because I had said to him, oh, what? I said, well, are you ever coming back to dance? He goes, no, I want a house and a car. So, you know, he's doing the right thing. He wants a house and a car. Because if he took one look at me, he'd know for sure that this is not the, this is not the route for him. Yeah. Your work often defies boundaries and is very, like, multidimensional. I'm wondering what is it that interests you in all these different aspects or art forms that you kind of incorporate within your work oh yeah well i don't know so before so so i auditioned for nida but i but i also auditioned for the university of wollongong when i got out of high school i also auditioned to do their their i was going to do a double major i was going to do theater funnily enough theater and um visual arts I was going to do a double, you know, fine arts major. But for some reason, I don't know, that, that didn't happen because NASDA happened. And in in between going to NASDA, just before I went to NASDA, so I auditioned and then 
I'd auditioned also with a monologue, with a couple of my, my monologues. I think I'm Bernard, Bernard Shaw, St. Joan, and oh, what was the other? Can you believe it? It's ridiculous. Maybe a piece from Top Girls. I can't remember. And uh, Ernie Dingo was there. And so then Ernie Dingo said, oh, we want you to be an actor in the Playwrights Conference. So I then went to Canberra at a, because they had a, the first National Aboriginal Playwrights Conference. Oh, my God. these The people there were people like Bob Mazza, Justine Saunders, Ujuru New Knuckle, you know, Kev Walker. Um, oh, my God. Like all the biggest names. Well, you know, Rhoda Roberts was there. Like everybody was there, and but I still, because I was ignorant, I didn't appreciate the company I was keeping. You know what I mean? It's so. There's always been. There's always been an undercurrent. I've never, I've never let theatre go. I've never really let that go. You know, it's always been. And it, while I, while I was at NASDA, I was always given the speaking roles. So if there was ever an MC or if there was something to do, I was given that role, and they'd always, you know, there's but poet. I'd always have to do the poetry readings, or they'd always be like the little character interlude, and so I'd do that. Uh, and then also, I remember Paul Saliba, you know, I, and I'd always was drawing as well. So I do large scale coloured drawings, and I remember Paul Saliba saying, "Oh my God, if I could draw like you, I'd quit dance and draw in a heartbeat." And I said, no, but I want to be a dancer now. I've committed to dance. And so I think, you know, doing, and I, and I always, when you're at NASDA as well, you're always a part of the Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal practice is that you make your props. So you're making, you know, you make, whether that be a durry, that's a headdress, you know, a bamboo, a bent bamboo and feathers, cut feathers, or whether that's your zazi, which is a skirt, or for that... Uh, for the Aboriginal stuff, whether you're making your feather, you know, your feather, what do you call it, your dancing feathers, or that sometimes there's a mop. Uh, there's in some of the places we used to wear these shades. They were fringes, um, mop fringes that you would wear over your face. It's like a veil. Um, you know, so we were always making things. So I got into set design it was just that I was making prop. I was making my props just on a larger scale, and so I, and I don't know because I'm attached to it. There's another element to spending time, spending time before you dance in a space, and I, so the more fiddly it is, the actually the more time for contemplation. You know, so while I'm in that space, I'm contemplating the work. I'm contemplating, you know, the the either the gra gravity of the work or other elements around it so I, yeah I've always had a yeah I've always had an interest I don't think going into going into NASDA like that was the last discipline I learned and so there I was taught and so I was always I was always interested in other things and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm greedy that way I see somebody doing something and I want to do it as well oh my god I've only got you know I think oh my god how many years have I got left I think I could learn that so at the moment I'm doing a judo i started judo uh beck dean who is a she used to be one of the directors at performance space she she put a shout out on facebook is 46 too late oh god i'm letting out her age i don't know how she oh god oh too late anyway she said is 46 too old to start martial arts and i said and i replied is 49 and then i went i found a judo class who's with me crickets nobody was with me 
And so two years later, I'm still doing it. And that's kind of, I don't know, because it's new, because it's fresh. Uh, I'm, you know, sometimes I, like today I skived off my, the end of my rehearsal so that I can make it to the judo, so that I can make it to judo tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm just greedy for a lot of different things. And I feel, you know, and it's an extension of an Aboriginal, like, well, this is a very, like, people are going back to site-specific and multidisciplinary things. But, you know, that's a, when was that, you know, that was a construct of thank you, Louis the Fourteenth, or what, is it Louis the Fourteenth? Thank you, Louis, for breaking up all the arts for us. And now I think people are just getting, you know, people are just, you know, th things move, move in waves. It just happens to be like a, you know, 500, 600, 500 um, year wave of the arts, you know, separating out to them coming back together. Given the diversity of your practice, do people struggle or desire to put you into boxes? I think, yeah, well, listen, so I've just been, I've just made an installation for uh, the real time, there's a dialogues in response. It's a real, you know, real time magazine. So real time magazine has officially shut shop, and they, uh, um, Uni New South Wales and Trove, uh, the National Library have um, archived all the past issues, and three artists were chosen: uh, Martin Delamo, myself, and Branch Nebula. We were chosen to, I don't know, I don't know, reside in a gallery space and make a work in response to real time. So that, that was the goal. So the other two, um, the other two artists, arts groups, had decided to make uh, what was it? Video, uh, not video, to present photo essays. You know, photographic essays of their the history of their work and I had made I had remounted uh, a river of cards like a smaller version of a river of cards a river of playing cards where each card is represents a dot of a topographic you know painting but also it's representative of the way uh, wealth is proliferated from the sale of paintings in remote communities but I, when that review kept so I didn't just, uh, what was it, I didn't just respond to his reviews, I responded to his reviews in comparison to other reviews, or, I mean not his, their real-time real magazine's reviews in, in comparison to other reviews. So I think a lot of other reviews have been, I think, have been quite harsh in different ways because they do want to put me in a box. They do, so for instance, in for brilliant, that was the piece. That was the piece with the cards. Somebody had said that they had, they didn't look at the function of the, they didn't look at the function of the cards. They just note, they just noted that the aesthetic was garish and reminded them of um, a McMansion of ugliness in, if it was in terms of real estate. Uh, and for another work that I'd made, a reviewer had spoken about a lot of people actually had spoken about that like the dramaturgy of one work long grass in that a lot of people said that it was a little bit messy because it it ran too slow at the beginning so it didn't have the right kind of like it didn't have the right kind of flow but i did that because I, and i feel 
I'm my, my role is not to be necessarily always popular. My role is to open avenues for other artists. So, for instance, there is now a young woman. Her name is Carly Shepherd. So Carly Shepherd just won a Green Room Award, I think, for for her experimental piece about an alter ego that she has, you know, featuring an alter ego of hers called Chase, who is a young average a young fair Aboriginal woman who just discovers she she is Aboriginal, and so she's out to scam the scam like she's in inadvertently scamming the government and scamming, you know, she's she's exploring her avenues, let us just say, but. I don't think she could have, I think it would have, I think she could have existed, but I think it would have been harder for Carly to make that work if there wasn't somebody before her. Because when she was coming through NASA, I was a teacher of hers at NASA, I found that she was there in her year, like everybody just wanted, you know, they wanted to shut up and dance and Vicky make a work on them, but Carly really engaged. And so I feel that there are, you know, there. I'm opening up, maybe. You know, just opening up the, the door, the door a little wider for other people to engage with Aboriginal information in different ways. That it's not just about the narrative, but how the narrative. And you can make, you can make the uh, what do you call it, the content about how we frame Aboriginal art or how we frame the narrative, not just about the narrative per se. Mm. You know what I mean? And there's so right. many different ways of looking at that. Yeah, you wrote a response to a reviewer many years ago when they described the work as a dreamtime fable and kind of used that as a way of educating, actually, reviewers and critics and people out there to talk about work in better ways that understands kinship systems, that understands the unique experiences of First Nations people and in that kind of way. I guess you, your work kind of continues to educate uh, other people about different experiences and different ways of accessing. Yeah, and I think also, I think for me, it's not just it's not just about m making a work. It's a all right. So you know, we've got hundreds and hundreds of years of you know, uh, what is it? Provenance? It's not provenance. We've got like we've got a, what is it? A lineage. We've got a lineage of European theatre right and we know we know a three-act play we know how it's you know we know how it moves we know how where it accelerates and we know how how a work resolves but i think there are so many there's other there's another like uh i think we have to explore other concepts of time you know if we're going to look at the dreaming you know we have to explore what that means or and what that could mean for all of us not just Aboriginal people, like it just happens to, it happens to be that's my in, but it would be in like you know people are starting to question, just push the boundaries uh, about those the t constraints of time and place in a in a work, and I think and how something should look and why is it aesthetically displeasing or why is it pleasing why why do I feel uncomfortable in a room or but but I. This last work, Talk Talk, is maybe challenging in a different way. So it's challenging. I was, more than anything else, I'm putting a call out in a funny way. I'm putting a call out to uh, other Aboriginal people. I, I want them to ask. I, I put out a series of provocations 
and I want them, I'm, I'm inviting them to, into a dialogue with me, whether that's in the theatre by their response, whether they stay in the room or walk out because they don't like it, or they do like it, whether they laugh, because it is a comedy, ultimately it's a comedy. Long Grass, the work that I made previously to this, or a couple of works before this, was not a comedy was actually quite harrowing and it took a lot out of me because I had a big responsibility. Was I going to show it like it is or was I going to make it into some poetic rendering? And then by doing that, I felt like I would have belittled the information. I would have made the condition because long grass is long grass is the term is it's not. A, and actually it's owned by long grass as well is a term given to people living rough, Aboriginal people living rough in in and around the greater area of Darwin. And so they, they've got different names in different areas and it's, you know, fringe dwellers. But, you know, there's a lot of violence. There's There are actually many reasons why people have um, moved to Darwin, choose to move to Darwin, because there's the hospital there. So a lot of people from outlying areas go to Darwin to go to the hospital. A lot of relatives might come to visit that person in hospital. Then they get stuck because they don't have money to go back. So then they find themselves living rough. Or, they, you know, there's people running from the law, whether that's Aboriginal law or something else. There's There are people who are running because they don't like or fleeing or leaving because they don't like they don't like the constraints of the intervention. They don't like the fact that they have to live in a basic card and that, you know, they can only spend their money in a certain shop, you know. So this was, you know, this was what was, uh, I don't know, preying on my mind when I made when I made that work uh, with um, a Larrakia man, Gary Lang. And so, but, you know, it had different degrees of success. So a lot of people, invariably a lot of people, they critiqued, the techniques employed and not and weren't were only moved by the content in a very cursory manner in the reviews. And I found that quite like, you know, it was a piece of entertainment. And so that was and I I was very disappointed because I didn't know how I could elevate that from I, I didn't know how I could elevate that work. And so I just went back to making comedy because I think comedy really works. Comedy in a way, it has people laugh. You don't feel like you're being, you don't feel like you're being, you know, finger pointed. You don't feel like you're being singled out. You can have a good laugh and then you can go away and think about it. You know what I mean? So this Plenty series, Talk Talk, there's a series of provocations and they're more about the way performers are perceived and the role of the Aboriginal, the role of an Aboriginal artist not just the role of an Aboriginal as an artist, but the role, you know, so there is, so it's, again, it's a very um, short episodic, it, it, it's a work of short kind of episodic, not narratives, but pieces. Uh, there is one called, that did first appear somewhere else. It's the only one that appeared somewhere else, but I felt like it had to go in here. And it's called, But I'm Just a Dancer. And it just, start, and it's a, it does start off with, uh, I'm just dancing a response, but I'm just a dancer. That's all I do. I just do sign language, but I'm, but I'm just a dancer. And so, but it starts off with somebody coming up to me. Oh, it was, this was a beautiful performance. It moved just to tears, didn't it, Stevie? 
and th and then from that they launch into we were wondering if it wasn't too much if you could give us a totem too we there was an aboriginal group that performed at stevie's school and they they said all aboriginal people had one so we wouldn't mind if you would give us one too in the spirit of reconciliation and all that and then the, and then it goes on to by the way what do you think about strip mining you know diabetes especially in your people not that you've got anything to worry about you've got a beautiful figure so it was just like all of these things like so you're seen as so you know sometimes you're seen as this funny kind of soothsayer and they want to you know they want you to answer the world but you know you're just a dancer so it's it's the role that's thrust upon you when you when I, you know when i went to naysdor I, I counted to eight and i maybe had my own opinions but i didn't know that my role extended you know far beyond that uh, there's another there's another piece because I'm always looking at you know the worth of dance and how dance is perceived so there's another piece called the auction where I auction where I pit ballet steps again uh, like against or with uh, Aboriginal steps so there's a section that goes let's see a show of hands for those prepared to wage a big leg beat for a double up dirt flick do we have a leg beat can I have a leg beat is there anyone here prepared to go big beat for a double up dirt flick we have a leg beat bidder. Can we raise a leg beat bid to include a part of a ray? That's a backside front, a one, two, three, a double dirt flick up for a one, two, three, and an upbeat bash. We have a leg beat with a one, two, three. That's a backside front. Can I see a paddle for an upbeat beat with a BSF and a standard cat leap? That's a soda char en Francais. Do I see any peep? Do I see any takers for a double up dirt foot flick in return for a leg clap on lair with a one, two, three, and an abseiling feline? That's two. I oh know, and a, yeah. That's two applauding feet with a step or change and a moggy with wings in exchange for a double quick flick flick. So, you know, I've got a little auction going on. And there's a, but it is to look at, you know, I do remember seeing something on So You Think You Can Dance however many years ago. And in that, they were talking about, what were they talking about? In that piece, they, there was one of the judges was pitting a Brazilian dancer against a ballet dancer and going well come on you know the technique and the virtuosity of the ballet dancer is so much you know is, there is you know is so much higher than that of the brazilian dancer it was like oh my god you know what i mean it's it's just one aesthetic to another aesthetic and so this has always rubbed me the wrong way and so you know there's there's that or there's there's one where i write there's a section where so this is close to my friends my peers this will be a little bit controversial there's one where i cold call somebody and try to sell my aboriginality because i'm looking to make a bit of a buck so i talk about you know i ask her uh, how much would you you know how much would you pay for a cup of coffee how much would you pay for a car what about a house now if i was to sell you my aboriginality what would you sell for what would you what what, what are you prepared to give me you know we're perceived as two percent of the market but we're actually it's actually maybe more like 25 percent and we're into the i said uh, i think i said we're in the process of reacquisitioning land and so i've got a whole thing i've got a whole video where what i did and i've used this video quite a bit i've got a little excerpt of a video where i set up a tent on a roundabout in the middle of that annandale and so but i what i did is i taped a camera to a pole on the other side so people would just walk past and just watch me trying to trying to pitch my tent on the roundabout and then i think in the video as well so people were giving me because there was a bit of a breeze and people were telling me that's not how you pitch a tent 
But then also the cops did a slow drive-by and I was like, and I did say to them as the cops did the slow drive-by and it's on the video, as they do a slow drive-by, I'm like, yeah, man, I will take this down. I'll take this down. And then when they leave, I just look at the camera and I was like, oh, no, shoot, I'm so close. But then somebody, yeah, so there's, you know, there's just stupid propositions. This year has already delivered you, I guess, a range of, like, professional uh, things, very exciting things, including the recent winner of the Australia Council Award for Dance, which must have been quite a thrill. What else is in store for the year? Uh, Well, listen, I keep saying that I'm doing a PhD, but I'm yet to put pen to paper or put my fingers on the keyboard. So... Yes, so I'm I'm in the middle of a PhD for which I've written nothing, and my supervisor is not too happy about that. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I'm I'm trying, and I'm also mentoring a um, a whole slew of people. I don't know how that happens. All of a sudden, one day you're old enough, and it's kind of funny because I don't know if they actually take me seriously or not. But there's a whole slew of people. But it's nice because you need to have a, like a dialogue with your art, you know. So it's I'm just an older voice, I think, you know, showing people different options and maybe having a discussion about, you know, art. So I, oh, and I'm working on a piece called The Sunshine, yes, The Sunshine Girl, which is about um, Yvonne Gulligan. So uh, Andrea James is the writer-director and I'm the choreographer for that. Uh, the best thing, yeah, the last showing, uh, Yvonne and her husband, Roger Corley, both turned both turned up. And when they were finished, she came up to me and gave me tennis tips and told me how to how to access the stage and what to do and how to I don't know how to move like her on how to like how, how I should uh, utilize the coverage of the stage. That was great. Like so, she had one of her kitty rackets, and she was showing me how like and she was giving me. She was giving me pointers on how to serve. She was telling me, no, listen, she said, we don't, we never ever played on the baseline. We had smaller rackets. It was all about the volley. And so, yeah, she, it was so good. Thanks for listening. You can find a list of episodes notes at delvingintodance.com. This podcast can be listened to on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and found on Facebook and Twitter. Delving Into Dance is currently unfunded and can only continue with your donations. So if you like this project and you want to see it continue, please donate now on the website. Until next time, take care.